Thanks for joining us on the New Beginnings Podcast, where our goal is to help people connect with Christ. We hope you enjoy listening. One of our series called Jesus Is. If you have your Bible, go to Mark chapter 1 with me as we dive into these next four weeks. We dive into the life of Christ and just, just four big ideas that I really think are just so crucial to you knowing and understanding Jesus and being able to walk with him. And so Mark chapter 1, let's just dive right in. I don't know if I have a sermon as much as I have an idea. And I'm going to throw a bunch of scriptures behind it and try to unpack an idea because I think the idea is powerful and can change your life. Mark chapter 1, he begins with this. He goes, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He starts in just with like a huge, normally we would just read over this as if it were some generic uh, greeting. Normally, because we're we're already at a church and 2,000 years later, we already have these preconceived ideas. We remember Mark is writing this and he comes out with a right cross. He does not jab. He does not, you know, feel out his opponent. He's just like, no, I'm swinging at you. This is it. It is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. He. This is again him saying he is... The one sent by God. He is the son of God. And it is written by the prophet Isaiah. So he comes out and he says, not only is this, but there's prophecy about this person. It's not just that he's the Messiah sent by God or the son of God. This is the Lord because the prophecy that he's about to read here is about God himself. And so he said, don't you know what Isaiah said? He said, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist represents this kind of voice preparing the way for the Lord. He goes, so John, he appeared to you in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, John was kind of weird. He wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And his message was this, though. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus, everybody say Jesus, but just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit, everybody say spirit, and the spirit was descending on him like a dove and then a voice, everybody say a voice, then a voice comes from heaven saying, you're my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. Um, this story is incredible here. It just, it, again, it just starts with the right cross. Mark, just so you know, is the shortest of all the four gospels. It's the punchiest. It's the most action packed. It's the quickest. It's just boom, 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 boom. As a matter of fact, most theologians, because in the first century, there was a church father that said, well, Mark was a disciple of Peter and Mark's gospel is really just him translating Peter's version of the greatest story ever told. And so this is really, in some ways, Peter's. And it fits kind of Peter's personality. If you watch Peter throughout the Gospels, he's just all over the place. And he's quick and he's fast and he's sometimes sticking his foot in his mouth or doing dumb things. But he is he's on it. He's quick. And so this Gospel of Mark kind of represents that flow and that idea. And so, but Mark comes out and he says so much in this first opening statement, but it he gets eventually to this moment, and this moment's also recorded in the book of Matthew. You can go read it. It has a more detailed account, if you will, where Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan River. 
But what I want to take note of today is something that is hidden in the text and is something that we, again, would probably gloss over. Most of us, if we grew up in church, we would just make assumptions. We would, again, just have kind of this pre-wiring to say, oh, okay, yeah. But what you notice is, and what I had you kind of repeat back to me was, is that in that moment where Jesus is being baptized in the Jordan River, you have Jesus in the water, you have the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and then you have the Father speaking from heaven, beloved, this is my Son in who I am well pleased. What you have here is a picture of the Trinity, because again, like I said, you've got Jesus being baptized, the Spirit's like a dove, and... The Father speaking. You know what this is actually like is Mark and the gospel writers do this a lot. They play on the Old Testament. What he's actually doing is playing on Genesis chapter 1. Because in Genesis 1, 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form of void, and darkness fell on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the... That story is really what's going on here. Because in the creation account, you have God... Right? Then it says that the spirit is hovering or fluttering. As a matter of fact, the Aramaic version of the Hebrew Bible actually says that he fluttered like a dove over the waters of creation. And then you have God speaking, because how did God create? You have him using his words, and Jesus was referred to as the word of God. And so Mark is really just doing a throwback to Genesis chapter 1, where you see this idea of father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, what he's, what he's really just kind of showing you is, is this idea of Trinity. Everybody say Trinity. Now, Trinity is not a word you can find in the Bible. It's an idea. It's really the way that you see God interacting with everything. And so what Mark is really showing you is that by looking at Genesis 1 and then looking at, at this first story in, in, in Mark chapter 1, is that this Trinitarian flow is found in creation, but it's also found in redemption as he begins to unfold the redemption story. So all of life flows, both creation and redemption, flows from this Trinitarian view of God, which, by the way, is weird, right? It's a mystery. It's odd. It's peculiar throughout, you know, I don't, a couple thousand years now, people have been trying to get language To describe this big idea, which this language really fails because this idea of Trinity, it's not that it's an illogical idea, it's that it's an idea without comparison, right? There's really nothing, like people would say, oh, well, it's like water, right? You got H2O, but then it's a solid, it's a gas, it's a, it's a liquid, so it's one, but it's three, but it's three, but it's one, or, you know, the Catholics would say if you look at a clover with three leaves, or if you look at a, if you're hungry, you look at a pretzel and it's, you know, it's, it's, or if you if you're a scientist, you look at the atom, right? And you have you have an atom, but then you have protons and neutrons, and then it's being flowed around by these electrons. Do we get nerdy? God, right, screw that. We get that out of there. So I don't want to bore you with science or weirdness or whatever. But we've been trying to figure out how, with our little finite words, how to describe the wonder and the mystery in the infinite. Godness that is, and we can't quite get our language to quite figure it out. But the writers of the Bible were picking up on this idea, because this is not just a Mark idea. This is found, as a matter of fact, if you go to the Apostle Peter or Apostle Paul, Paul says it like this. He says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's Jesus, and the and the love of God, that's the Father, and then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, may he be with you all. You have this idea, it's just God's, in, and, and it's and here's the deal, it's not that there's three gods, that's not what they were saying. They weren't saying there's three gods that just like each other, made a team, and then came up with this stuff. And they're not saying that God is one God, 
that just every once in a while decides to express himself like this or like that or like the other. But it's deeper than that. It's that somehow God is fully one, but yet fully three. He's never more three than he is one, and he's never more one than he is three. But but again, you, you try to get your brain wrapped around that, and I'm not sure, again, that our words can fully express what all this means. Here's what Peter said. Peter says, in a, in a very similar way, Boo. Um, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus. And so they're like, it's, and, and what's weird is, is that when you read the Bible, sometimes there seems like there's overlap. Sometimes it feels like their names are just kind of placeholders because it seems like, cause, cause I know what you're asking. Well, who does what? Who's, who's responsible for what? Who's in charge of what? What, what are the list of responsibilities that each one has? And you can't fully fill in all those answers because it seems like they're sometimes taking each other's place and moving around and you can't quite, even in the Old Testament, watch this, watch this in the Old Testament. They were, they were, I don't know why, but in the Hebrew language, it says this in a couple different places, but even in creation, God says, let us, everybody say us. Now the Jews only believed that God was one and only one. This is, as a matter of fact, one of the objections that, that Judaism has to Christianity or one of the hurdles that they have mentally is they've been taught their whole life that God's just one. So when Christians come along and say, well, actually, he's one, but he's three, and he's three, but he's one, they're like, no. No, that can't be. Because they have a prayer, the Shema, that, that, that says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. So they're like, no, God's one. God can't be three. That would be idolatrous. But the fascinating thing is that the same word for oneness that they use in Deuteronomy is the same word in Genesis when it says that Adam and Eve became one. So it's possible to have oneness even in twoness and even in threeness. I'm glad y'all think that's funny. So so again, and it's not the only place. As a matter of fact, in, in uh, Genesis 18, there's a crazy story where Abraham meets three individuals. And he calls them all three the Lord. And then three of them disappear and there's just one of them. You're like, what is going on here? And there's just, so again, there's this, there's this mystery called the Trinity and it's fascinating. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about it because he has a good take on it. He goes, in Christianity, God is not a static thing but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And so when you think about the reason why you can't figure out who's doing what, when, how, and who's responsible for what is because there's a everybody say a flow. So for all you women that like dancing and are good at dancing, everybody say dance. Just ladies say dance. But dudes don't dance for the most part. If you do, you're the man. But if most of us are, you're in my boat, we can't dance, everybody say flow. So dudes, we'll go with flow today. And ladies, you'll go with dance. He said there's a flow. There's a dance. Because what you find in the Trinity is this fascinating thing where it seems as though there's this beautiful rhythm and harmony. And the reason why you can't figure out where one begins and the other ends and who's doing what, when, and how. And wait a minute. So I pray to the Father by the spirit in the name of Jesus. And you see this, okay, I got, okay. There's something going on here. Like, so, cause somebody are always like, well, who do I pray to? I just pray. I promise God's not going to be like, well, wait a minute. You didn't do it right. 
I won't answer that because you said it this way and not that way. As if God spoke English or something ridiculous. Anyway. So, so again, you, you have to get this idea that there's a beautiful flow. There's this dynamic. As a matter of fact, the best way to maybe think of it is when John starts talking or describing this, this, this sermon that Jesus gives, he talks about in John chapter 16 that Jesus will live, will leave, but the spirit will come and the spirit will glorify Jesus. So Jesus saying, Hey, I'm out of here, but, but someone's coming after me. And he will glorify me. But in the next chapter, Jesus is saying, Lord, I glorified you. Now will you glorify me? And then, so what you see is, is that you see this idea of this beautiful mystery, this rhythm, this dance, this flow of three and one and one and three, where they are constantly self-emptying and other glorifying. Let me say that again. They are constantly in this mode and flow of self-emptying and other glorifying. They are constantly lifting the other one up. And that's why there's this rhythm and this dance to it. And this, and what it does is, let me tell you why this is important. Cause there's a theological idea that we just kind of unpacked briefly, but then you have to ask yourself, what is the point? Like, what, what does this mean to us? And it has two really, really big implications. And the first one is this. It's that ultimately the Trinity reveals to us the very nature of God. Remember, they are constantly self-emptying and others glorifying. As a matter of fact, what, what John later said when he was writing is, is it's simply this. And I'll, I'll read the whole thing to you, but it says this. It says, whoever does not... Love does not know God because God is love. So God is love. See, what you believe has implications. Like, For example, if you didn't believe that there was a God, then there is no such thing as love. There's just kind of chemistry, right? Love doesn't exist. It's just little chemicals firing off inside of your brain, creating certain sensations or whatever. And so there is, there is no such thing as love. But if God were person or universal or just one, then God couldn't be love either. Because love is something that most must be given and received. So God can't be just what now if God was just one, he could be true, he could be just, he could be powerful, he could be all those things. But if God were just one, God couldn't be love. Because before creation there would be no giving of love and there would be no receiving of love. That dispels another idea that somehow like you and I were created because God was bored, right? Like a kid in his room is bored, so he creates and imagines and uses and builds and plays. It wasn't like God was in heaven all by himself and was bored. Well, I'll create people so I'm not lonely, and I'll interact and engage with these people. That's not true. See, before creation began, God was love. He was already in perfect Harmonious relationship. God was already completely happy and satisfied in and of himself, which means that he did not create you because he needs you. He was not bored looking for something to do. God created you because he already experienced perfect love and just wanted to pour out of that and give it away even more. God does not need you. God just desires you. God just loves you because again, love is a verb. So you see this idea that, that love is the nature of God and the nature of God is love. You see that again, that there's this father, son, and spirit kind of flow working together where they again, they are emptying of themselves and glorifying others. It's love. 
This is what makes sense maybe of the Apostle Paul when he says this. There's a famous poem. We read it at weddings. It's not a wedding poem, but it goes along these lines. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It does not have self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoice in the truth. It protects. It trusts. It hopes. It perseveres. And so you see this God isn't just that he loves. It's that the very nature of God is love. That's why love is the ultimate ethic and virtue. That's why Paul later says that the greatest virtues in life are faith, hope, and love. But the greatest one is love. You, you might want to get this. If you're a Christ follower, you may want to may want to dial into this. This is what makes so much more sense of everything that the apostles say. Is that they figured out who God was and what God was all about. Because Jesus, remember what John recorded? That Jesus sat them all down and said, hey guys, I'm giving you a new command. And this is the command, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And this isn't like a new Jesus idea. Jesus said, no, that's always been this way. Because they asked him, what's the most important thing of the Old Testament? He goes, well, there's a lot back there, but I can summarize it into two things. You just love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. Or before the end, when he gathers his disciples around, he's like, all right, I'm I'm almost out of here. But you need to know this. There's one way that they'll know that you follow me is by how you treat other people. It is by how you love one another. That is it. That's what Paul said later. It's what Peter says it like this. Above all else. How many know that's a summary statement? That's a pre- Above all else. Love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Paul has one of these statements. A summary statement. He goes, hey, nothing else matters. That's summary statement, right? Like, disregard everything I just said. If you miss everything, don't miss this. Nothing else matters but faith working by. That's why Paul said you can, you can have all the right answers and have all the right doctrines and be all correct about everything. But if you don't have love, you're obnoxious. You're like a gong. It's, it's difficult for you just to be around you. What is the ultimate? It is the very nature of God. That's why it's a supreme ethic. That's why. So what this what this shows to you is this, is that not only is Trinity reveal the very nature of God, but actually Trinity gives you the blueprint for all relationships. Because if God is love, then what he's showing you is the pattern and way in which the world works. Is that for you? Okay, real quick. If you're married, give me a little little hand raise. Okay, so watch this. Oh, you're very excited. Thank you. That was my wife. Um. So if, so if, so if you're married, what, what it does is it becomes uh, this blueprint for what does it look like to be an incredible marriage? It's, it's two people who are all of a sudden self-emptying and others glorifying. I don't, I, cause see, there's self-emptying. There's, cause I, this is, this is me. Guys, focus real quick here. I always just assumed that I needed to be right. And I always assumed that I needed to win. I needed to get my way. And I found that I didn't do marriage very well because of that. Because of my need to win and to be right and to get my way. And what I realized was that there's a rhythm to marriage or a dance to it or a flow to it. And every time I need to win or I need to be right or I need to get my way, I disrupt the dance. I'm stepping on her toes. Ladies, it's the same. 
Every time you need to get right, get your way, be, have this, what you do is you're stepping on somebody's toes. And, and, And what great marriage looks like, blissful marriage, ridiculous marriage looks like is two people that both self empty and others glorify. That's what it looks like. Friendship is the same way. Right? Like if you really look at friendship, like great friendship, there is a self-emptying and others glorifying to the greatest friendships that you'll ever experience. And friendship is always weird or awkward when you have to win or be right or get your way or put self at the center of the flow. Because as soon as self is, that's the way most of us do relationship is that self is the center of the flow and we expect our spouse to revolve around us or we expect our friendships to revolve around us or our family to revolve around us. But that's not how the Trinity does it. No one puts the themselves in the center but they are constantly in this rhythm where the other one is lifting up the other one and they just keep doing it over no no no, you go higher no 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 you go no no you're awesome no 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 you're awesome they just keep just and so they're in this constant flow and rhythm and that's the way it works because to to not be and to put yourself in the center puts you into a debt debtor relationship you're in the middle how are they revolving around you and this is why we get so upset. If you ever, listen, listen, listen. If you cycle through friends, you need to listen to me. If you cycle through friends, it's because you put yourself in the middle. And this is why you can get easily offended or upset when they don't do what you thought they ought to do. Or they didn't say what, because if they don't say what they ought to say, or if they should have said this instead of that, whatever, you're putting yourself in the flow. But a self-emptying person is constantly edifying others, lifting others up. And you don't live in this world where you need everything to go your way. You need to be the center. You need to be right. Which, which just shows you this. That the, the real obstacle to the Trinitarian flow is pride. That's the real obstacle. It's me putting myself in the center because in, in the Trinity, no, nobody puts themselves in the center, but they, again, they self empty and they glorify others. Anytime you live life where you need to be in the center, that is the problem to the dance. That's the, cause now you're not dancing. Now it's just weird. Have you ever been to, remember when you were in school dance and there was that one person that was dancing alone? That's weird, right? Like, no, no, no. There's a rhythm. There's a flow. There's a participation to it. And so, and so again, what you need to do is figure out, okay, in, even in your church, think about this. In your church, so many people get offended because of what they did or didn't do or what they said or didn't say or how they said it or how they didn't say it. And then you leave a church offended. But see, again, you've put yourself in the center and you've made yourself a, a target for offense to where you can, could, why? Cause it, it, it's all about you. It's all about self. This is why if you are at all able to, you have got to serve and engage and participate in a church. If you're not serving and engaging and giving and participating, you're not in the flow. You're the person at the dance that's sitting, you're the dude that won't dance, you're too cool or you just don't know how or you're afraid to, and you're all on the outside looking in. That's what it's like for some of you at church because there's no participation in the flow. And if you're at all able, depending on your capacity, you've got to engage in the participation. That's what makes the life of a church great. That's what makes any friendship great. That's what makes any marriage great. You've got to participate in the dance and in the flow. And the way that you do that is you have to self Empty. Pride is the ultimate obstacle. It is the thing that totally gets in the way. This is what C.S. Lewis said about pride. And, and, and if this makes any sense to you, you know, again, you, you wrestle with this. 
But he said, you can tell how much pride you have by how much prideful people bother you. I thought, they really bother me. I don't like this, Mr. Lewis. Because Mr. Lewis was calling me on my junk. It's like he knew. He goes, no, prideful people bother you. Because once you get into, into relationship with somebody else or you get around it even, it's your pride rubbing against their pride that actually creates the friction. If there was no pride within you, you just wouldn't care. You'd be like, that's all right. It's no big deal. But see, when you have to be the center, and it's all about you, and you find somebody else that wants to be the center too, that is annoying. Can you believe him? Can you believe her? Did you see what she said? Did you see what? what, Did they take the center away from you? They took your spot. And so there's this battle. This is why pride, this is, most of the time when we look at pride, we look at Maybe um, we, we, we look at people that are rich or smart or good looking, right? And then we're like, oh, they're so arrogant because they just think they're so smart or they think they're so pretty or they think they're so rich or they think they're so whatever. And, 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 and you, listen, listen, pride takes no place in being rich or smart or good looking. It doesn't. Pride takes place in being richer, smarter, more better good looking than whatever. Gooder looking-er. That's what, that's what pride really wants. Because if everybody were equally rich or equally beautiful or equally smart, nobody would be proud. You'd be, have nothing to be proud of. Why? Because you're not, but, but pride puts me at the center and says, I'd like to be richer or smarter, better looking-er. Is that a word? Better look, more better looking. Hotter. So, you can put an ER behind hot. So, so it's the, it's the pride that wants to elevate. And so again, in any dynamic, in any relationship. See, again, if you ever, if you ever met a truly humble person, what you would realize about them is this. Because we have some false notions of humility too. A humble person is, when I say self-emptying, I don't mean like putting themselves down. That's not what I mean. They don't put themselves down. Sometimes that's a false notion of humility. It's just, oh, well, I know, no, I'm not smart. I'm dumb. And I, no, no, I'm not pretty. I'm ugly. And what you're doing is you're putting yourself at the center still. Trying to get other people to elevate you. And, and, and you're still putting yourself at the center. And so you got to be careful that you don't get this false notion of humility. Actually, a truly humble person, you would never think of them as, as, as humble in that way. You would just think, wow, they were so interested in me. They were so kind to me. They were so encouraging to me. It wasn't that they put themselves down. It was that they seemed to want to lift me up. That is what humility is. Or, or, or you could put it like this, that humility... Is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's, I don't put myself down. I'm not like, oh no, I'm an idiot. I'm the scum of the earth and I have cankles. Please, please, no. No, that's ridiculous. That is, that is pride in reverse because now I'm just trying to get more attention for me and put me back at the center. No, no, no. It's that I don't even think about how smart I am or how pretty I am or how big my ankles are. It doesn't even matter. It's irrelevant. It's just thinking of myself less. And I live in my marriage trying to self-empty and others glorify them, lift them up, encourage them, put them ahead of myself in my friendships, in my church community, especially in my marriage, which is so challenging. But again, there's a battle many times in marriage. The reason why we struggle is there's a, there's a battle. And the most blissful marriages were two people, self-empty and the others glorify. It's just that's great friendships 
Why are the, why do the best friendships just have a natural flow? Cause there's no debt debtor relationship. There's not you owe or I deserve or you should or you ought. No, there's just give. And when two people just constantly give into the other person, there's a dance, there's a flow, there's a harmony and it's beautiful. In a church, when it's not about, well, I didn't like this and I need this and you ought to do more of this and y'all ought to do this and I need more of this and you. Okay. What if you just participated in the dance? And self-empty and others glorify. Because if you got into a community where everybody did that, then everybody is being elevated. Everybody is being lifted up. Everybody is drawing closer and closer to Christ. Let me read these words in light of everything that we've just talked about. And I'll start to wrap up here. So, Philippians chapter 2. Look at how the Apostle Paul describes Jesus. and It's exactly what we're talking about today. Philippians 2 verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement... From being united with Christ. If there's any comfort from his love. If there's any common sharing in the spirit. If there's any tenderness and compassion. Then make my joy complete by being like minded. Having the same love. Being in the one spirit and of one mind. That sounds like rhythm and dance and harmony. Don't do anything out of what? Selfish ambition. Or vain conceit. Don't You don't put yourself in the middle It's not self-seeking, but rather in humility, value others above yourself. Value others above yourself. It's not that you lose any value. That's sometimes what we're so afraid of. We think that if we encourage somebody else, that they will somehow become more valuable than us. As if we had value, and if I encourage, I somehow give it away and become less valuable. That couldn't be further from the truth. When you give value away, you elevate your own value because you become the person inside the friendship or the marriage or the community that is lifting the other person up. And that alone in itself is value. So he says, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the other. In your relationships with one another. Well, it's basically this is the way Jesus thought. Because he, being in the very nature of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Or another translation said he emptied himself. There was a self-emptying. And he did it by taking the very nature of a servant. He was made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself. There's that word again. By becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Jesus shows up. And as soon as he shows up, you see the father blessing him and encouraging him. By the way, Jesus had done nothing yet on earth, right? Hadn't preached one sermon, hadn't performed one miracle, hadn't died for anybody, hadn't done anything special, didn't turn water into wine. That's really cool. Wow. Nothing. And Jesus said, that's my son. Or God said, that's my son and who I am well pleased. You see the Holy Spirit coming down and covering him with power. This is this Trinitarian flow. It's this realization. We say Jesus a lot, and that's that's easy to get our head wrapped around because he came to earth. There's a father figure. Most of us have a pretty good understanding of that. There's a spirit. That's maybe the most mysterious and hard to get your head around. But even deeper than that is how all three of them work together in this wonderful dance and this wonderful flow. And it shows you that God is love. 
and that that is the blueprint for how you handle every relationship in your life, that there's a flow where you self-empty and glorify the others. And when all three of them do that, it is beautiful, harmonious love, which just goes to show this. If the world was made by a triune God, then life is all about loving relationship. Would you bow your heads today? To look at the life of Jesus is incredible, but I thought before we look deeper into just his life and his words and and his miracles and things that he did, I thought, man, it might be good to just remember that Jesus did not come here completely on his own, but he was connected to something so much bigger and greater than we could ever imagine, something greater than we can even have words to fully express or even that our mind can fully wrap itself around. But what we can glean is this, is that God is love. And God is calling us to get into that flow, to get into that rhythm, to get into that dance where we self-empty and we glorify others, or we self-empty and we lift others up. We value them more than we value ourselves. We care about their interests and not just our own. So we don't, we don't put self at the center, but actually we lift others higher than ourselves. Hey, husbands, wives, listen, listen. What, what would it look like if in your marriage you were self-emptying and glorifying the other? Now, I know there's a kickback because there's a fear in you that says, well, what if they don't respond in kind? What if they, it doesn't matter. Somebody's got to start the dance. And that person can't meet your needs anyway. The reason why you are truly able to self-empty and glorify others is because ultimately it is God filling you up and God meeting your needs. That's what gives you the power to self-empty and glorify others. It's that because we have participated with God in that dance and that flow and that connection to him. So in your friendships, are you cycling through people because of what they did or didn't do or said or didn't say? Are we cycling or are we just adding value? Hey, in our church, is there a flow? Are you participating in the flow of what's going on? Again, giving, serving, relationships, participation, being a part. I'm telling you what, what Jesus shows us is the blueprint for how we thrive in our relationships. We empty self and we edify the other. God, would you help us to go do that? Or we could say it like this. Would you go help us to love one another even as you have loved us? Lord, that is our prayer in Jesus' name. And we all shouted, amen. Yeah, give the Lord a big hand clap this morning. Thanks again for listening to the New Beginnings Podcast. For more information on New Beginnings Church, please visit us online at nbchurch.tv.